Well, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Titus this morning. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2, looking at the first eight verses. If you're using, um, I didn't write it down, if you're using the blue ESV Bibles out there in the seat backs in front of you, you can find that text coming shortly on page 998, 998. Um, in these Bibles out there. Otherwise, it's Titus 2, uh, 1 through 8, and the title of our sermon this morning is um, kind of a, a long question uh, compared to some of the other ones in this series, but it's who is involved in the disciple-making process? Who is involved in the disciple-making process? And the key words for our worshipers in training are mature, maturing, and immature. If you are joining us uh, for the first time this morning especially, it will be helpful for you to know that we are in the fourth week of a brief series on the mission of the church. And what we are seeking to do in this, uh, it's a five-part series, so we're in the fourth part now. What we're seeking to do in this series is to clarify and renew our convictions as a church about the nature of Christian discipleship. Now, on any given Sunday of the year, you're most likely going to hear us preaching expositionally through books of the Bible. For instance, in February, we are aiming to begin a series through the book of Acts. But right now, beginning in 2023, the start of this year, the elders believe that now is a time that we need to Refresh. We need a fresh reminder about the design and the purpose of discipleship. It's something that the elders um, and deacons and, uh, and other church members have been talking about and thinking about and working on for uh, really the better part of a year now. And so we want to bring uh, some of our discussions and the things we've learned to bear on the life of the church as a whole. And uh, another reason why it's such a good thing to be doing this now is that we are uh, growing and maturing as a church. And so we want people, both people who are new to this congregation and as well as people who have been here for decades, to have a really clear picture in our minds about what it means to grow as a Christian, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ here at Redeemer Baptist Church at 226 Goshen Road. And so what does that mean for us as we gather here each week? But also, what does it mean as we go into our homes and our neighborhoods and the places where we work and the places where we enjoy recreation? We want all of us to be equipped to go into those places from here with a clear grasp of the mission to which we have been called as disciples of Jesus. And and so, um, here's the way that we have said it in this, um, this discipleship manifesto that we, we wrote um, and ha- passed out in the bulletins. I, I think all the bulletins for the month are gone now. But, um, so if you didn't get one of these, you can come find me and I'll, uh, I'll get it to you later. But this is what we, we uh, have, uh, well not written in here, but what we, this grew out of our, our mission statement which we do have in here and in the bulletin, and on the website, and wherever you want to look to try to find it, uh, it should be there. We said, our uh, Redeemer Baptist Church is a family of faith 
that exist to worship God with joy, love our neighbors, see transformed lives, and send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. That, now for the fourth week, right, that's why we exist. We want to love God and we want to love our neighbors. And we want to see our neighbors' lives, as well as our own, transformed by Jesus and for Jesus as Jesus is preached here at this church, in this pulpit, as he is discussed in our homes, in our places of work, and on the phone, and all over the world. And so in an effort to clarify these convictions about our task to make disciples, as Jesus says in Matthew 28, we're asking and answering these five questions about discipleship that will help us to live on mission for the Lord Jesus every day of the week. So far, we've addressed three questions. First, why do we make disciples? I sought to answer that from Revelation 7. We make disciples because we want to be used by God to bring as many people as possible into that great and innumerable multitude who will be gathered around the throne of Christ on that great day, enjoying the redemption that He's provided by His blood. And then we saw from Ephesians 4 uh, the answer to the question, well, what is a disciple? If that's why we make disciples, what is a disciple? And the short answer is that a disciple is one who submits his or her uh, mind, desires, and will to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. This means that uh, we want what we know, what we believe, and what we, uh, what we know and what we believe. So we want to be oriented around the truth, right? We want our loves, the things that we long for to be oriented around the truth, and the things that we choose, the way we choose to live, the choices that we make, we want them to be oriented around the truth. Uh, another way to put it was that we want our entire selves oriented around Christ, and increasingly conformed to his image. Well, third, we asked, how were disciples made? And we saw that uh, two weeks ago from 1 Peter 1 and 2, and we said that disciples are made as we speak God's word, as we seek the communion and power of his spirit, as we serve together as his people, offering spiritual sacrifices of holy lives unto the Lord, and as we strive together toward God's ultimate purpose in the world, which is the manifestation and the enjoyment of His glory in all the world. And next week, um, Illumide is going to close out the series with a sermon answering the question, where are disciples made? But today, we want to consider this. Who's involved? And based on what we said from First Peter, you could guess some of it, but I want to make it explicit in terms of uh, what the Bible expects of each and every one of us. So that's the question. Who is involved in the process of making disciples? I want to read from Titus now, the first eight verses of chapter 2, and then I'll outline our text, and then we'll get to work. Paul writes, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, 
that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. There are three things that I want you to notice with me from this passage today as we consider these first eight verses. First, in verse 1 and in verses 7 and 8, we see that pastors uh, and other officially commissioned spiritual leaders make disciples. Second, in verses 2 and 3, we see that mature men and mature women of the faith, learning primarily from their pastors, turn around and make other disciples. And third, we see in verses 4 through 6, that young men and young women, learning from their pastors and other mature disciples, are to grow up in the faith so that they too are equipped to make disciples. Uh, you could outline it similarly in the way that we did the key words, right? So mature, maturing, and immature. So look with me first in verse 1 and verses 7 and 8 where we see Paul He urges Titus here to lead the church in Crete in their endeavor to follow Jesus. In verses, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5 through 16, Paul tells Titus that he had left him in Crete so that he could put what remained in order. He wanted him to appoint elders in every town. And then he states the types of qualities that a man must possess to be considered for the role of elder. In short, the man is to live an exemplary life of godliness, um, and he should be able to contradict uh, the false teachings of those who reject sound doctrine. So like we saw in 1 Timothy last summer, uh, he has a godly life and he's able to teach. Well, Paul then urges Titus Similarly, he says that Titus ought to teach what accords with sound doctrine. He says this in our text, in verse 1 of chapter 2. Then in verses 7 and 8, Paul exhorts Titus to show himself in all respects to be a model of good works. He's to show integrity. He's to have dignity. He's to have sound speech in his teaching. Why? So that their opponents, should they arise, would be silenced. Now, Paul doesn't use the term discipleship here, but discipleship, as we've seen over the last several weeks, is it is, in essence, the steady transformation of our hearts to reflect the heart of Jesus. This is simply another way to describe the entirety of the Christian life. What Paul is doing here, he is helping Titus and therefore future readers like us to understand how those who belong to Christ and are therefore members of His body, the church, how we are to help one another in the Christian life. How we are, in other words, to disciple one another. And it begins with Titus. Titus is Uh, sort of a representative of ordained and officially commissioned church leadership here. And so, in what he says to Titus, what do we learn about this first group of disciple-makers? Well, primarily we learn two things from this passage about the qualities that belong to the first group. 
And uh, we'll address them really not in the order that they're named here in chapter 2, but uh, sort of in the order of importance. First, mature disciple makers need to live exemplary I can say it. Exemplary lives of godliness. Here's what we said. Here's what we said in the manifesto. Under the category mature, we said pastors and elders and other uh, mature lay leaders are called to teach others who teach others. They are leaders committed to lifelong learning. They have not quote arrived but are mature disciples whose lives exemplify the gospel of grace. Fundamental to one's ability to be a teacher of the Christian life is an ability to live the Christian life. Now, of course, we should be clear here that the Christ, living the Christian life doesn't mean a life of sinlessness, but it does mean a life of genuine faith and repentance. So the mature disciple strives for holiness without which no one will see the Lord, according to the author to the Hebrews. And this mature disciple repents of his sin when he comes up short of this holy standard, which, of course, we would acknowledge is a daily occurrence. So we're not talking about perfection and obedience, but we are talking about sincerity of life. We are talking about genuine, open humility. And we're talking about repentance from sin whenever sin is committed. Paul urges Titus to show himself to be a model of good works in all respects. The Christian leader, in many ways, lives his life in a fishbowl, observed by all. It's a daunting requirement You know, when we think about installing pastors and elders here at Redeemer Baptist Church, and similarly with deacons, um, when we think about installing pastors and elders here, we're primarily concerned with what? With, with the character of the man in question. Which is why we have a, a minimum three-month process of public evaluation for any man who desires to be an elder or a deacon at this church. Christian leaders need to be not perfect men, but they need to be men of integrity and dignity and sound speech. I love the word integrity, right? Because it it asks the question, what, what does the man do when no one is looking? When no one else is going to find out except perhaps the Lord, what does he do when no one else is looking? But other questions that Paul's instructions invite is, does the man live an honorable life worthy of respect? Does he live with a real and a genuine measure of self-control? And in particular here, control over what? Over his speech. So that's true of all Christian leaders. But when we consider pastors and elders in particular, we're also asking a question about their ability to teach. Paul tells Titus that he is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. In chapter 1, verse 9, he says that elders must be able to contradict those who teach false doctrine. So how do pastors and elders fit into this discipleship scheme, uh, schema here at Redeemer Baptist Church? Well, discipleship begins in the ministry 
the teaching ministry, rather, of the church, starting right here in the pulpit. But really, what it, what it begins with even before that is the godly character of a church's leaders who are, in light of their graces of character and their gifts of teaching, they are the elders primarily responsible for ensuring that God's Word is being taught faithfully every week from this pulpit. Your elders are called to live holy lives as examples to you, which again, are lives lived in faith and repentance, not perfect lives. And we are called to teach the Bible, guarding the good deposit of the doctrine laid out for us in Holy Scripture. Now, I want to be clear. The ability to teach doesn't necessarily mean an ability to preach. Not, not every elder of a church needs to have the same uh, level of preaching ability or even the same level of teaching ability. Teaching takes many forms. There needs to be a competency in teaching, and teaching takes many forms, right? It could be preaching. It could be teaching adult Sunday school or children's Sunday school or teaching uh, student ministry either in the, the monthly Bible study they have or in their Sunday school class. Uh, it could be teaching in small groups, counseling, and the like. There's a vast a variety of options for the, the ways in which an elder may exercise the teaching gift. But ultimately, what it is, is that the pastors and the elders initiate and they lead in the process of discipleship, first by living holy lives, and then second by teaching in sound doctrine. So we initiate it, but we're not the entirety of the process. Discipleship begins in the pulpit, but it doesn't end there. Because it must be worked out in every facet of church life. So one way you could put this, summing up this first point, is that elders make disciples who make disciples. So look with me then in the second place, in verses 2 and 3, where we see that uh, non-ordained but maturing believers make disciples as well. Older men, he says, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and in steadfastness. He goes on and says that older women should be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, teaching the younger women what is good. What you can imagine here is that Titus is there in Crete. He's appointing elders in every town. And those elders then turn around and teach and instruct other disciples who turn around and teach and instruct yet other disciples who then turn around and teach other disciples. And on and on it goes. Here's what we said about the maturing in our our document on discipleship. We said the maturing are Christians committed to lifelong learning who are growing in Christ-likeness as they are equipped to tell others what God has done for them. Now admittedly, maturing is a category that covers a wide spectrum of disciples. Technically, every Christian should fit into this group. We're all maturing. But when we think about, you know, when we're trying to think about who all is involved in this process, uh, what we're thinking of here are, are those who are not ordained leaders in a church, 
But they are mature Christians following the lead of the elders in instructing others in the faith. Now we we hope and believe that this would and does actually categorize a very large percentage of Redeemer Baptist Church. And to whatever, whatever percentage that is, what we want is to see all of our members, every single one of us, built up into stable and mature, sturdy believers who have walked with Jesus for many years. Consider what Paul says about the goal of church life in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll turn there for just a moment. Beginning in verse 13, he says this. He says, uh, so God gives gifts. That's the way it kind of begins. Until we all attain the unity of the faith... Here we're in verse 13. The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the goal. The goal is the building up of the body of Christ, the church, you, us. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul speaks of the need of moving on from childhood to manhood and, and putting away of childish things. The author of the Hebrews says to his audience, that he says, you should have been you should be mature by now. You should be growing. You should be capable of digesting the, the spiritual meat of, of weightier doctrine rather than being left to the mere milk. So what role then do the maturing disciples play in discipleship here at Redeemer Baptist Church? Well, as I said, we want sturdy, maturing believers at Redeemer Baptist Church. We want these maturing, sturdy disciples who are striving to live holy lives. And they're seeking to bring others along with them as they submit their minds, their desires, and their wills to Jesus in faith and repentance. Right? The elders, as we've said, oversee the health of the congregation. But we are not... the. The entirety of the process. They're, especially in a growing church, elders cannot always be expected to be directly involved in every moment of discipleship, every step of the way of every member of the church. So we need maturing disciples of Jesus to come alongside the elders and to offer help in some of the details of discipleship in the life of the people of God. Right? Your elders are accountable to God for how we care for you, each and every one of you, every member of this church. We are accountable to God for you. But that doesn't mean that we can always be personally involved in every single detail of your lives. You would hate that. But as we make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, we all come alongside each other in the discipleship process as we are conformed to the image of Christ. 
So wherever you find yourself on, on the spectrum of mature or maturing, or, or as we will see in a moment, even immature, I want to be clear. You can always seek an elder to come alongside you in your moment of need. Perhaps we won't always be the first person that you call. We may not even be the last person that you call, though sometimes perhaps we should be. But make no mistake, dear flock, your elders are here for you, and so when you need us, call us. But remember that you have one another to reach out to as well, to encourage and to strengthen one another in the faith. And so the elders make disciples who turn around and make disciples. Look with me in the third place in verses 4 through 6. Here we see the place that the less mature, the, the immature even, disciples may hold in the discipleship process. Paul says to Titus that the older women should instruct the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Why? So that God's Word would not be reviled. And then Paul tells Titus that the young men need to be instructed in, the, uh, in self-control. Now, obviously, in, in both the, the older section and the younger section here, there's a lot of details that we could get bogged down in here. But for the point that is being made, the overall point that Paul is making here, um, the gist is this, right? You have mature, which usually uh, would imply older disciples of Jesus, instructing, guiding, helping less mature often younger disciples of Jesus, though age is not always a factor in it. But often it can be. Now, I said we want many sturdy believers here. But we also want and need new believers here who have a lot of maturing to do, a lot of growing to do. We want to see people come to faith in Jesus, get baptized and join the church as fresh new, and therefore, immature disciples. You know, immature is often a word that I think carries a lot of negative connotation with it. And in some instances, it, it is a negative word, right? If you're, if you're talking to a grown man who has no idea what it means to be a grown man, that's not a great thing. But if you're talking to a six-year-old or a four-year-old who happens to be immature, that shouldn't shock you. Kids are kids, and kids should be kids. Now, even a six- and a four-year-old can be maturing, and even mature for his or her age. But we don't expect maturity in the full sense of a word from a child or from someone who's just come to know the Lord Jesus. Right, the point that I'm making here is that if you've just recently come to know the Lord Jesus, you haven't had much instruction in the sound words of the faith, maybe you're in the category of immature. And that's okay, but you don't want to stay there. But it is good to recognize it and seek to grow. And even if you've known Jesus for a long time, but would still be in a category of immature, 
That might not be quite as okay, but it's okay to recognize it and to grow and to be changed in His image. Here's what, here's what we write about this category of, of immature for the purpose of this document. We said the immature are those who are first becoming disciples. They hear and respond to the call to believe on Christ. Yet even, as we've said, with, with this category of, of immaturity, we, we still want to affirm our desire that the immature begin to move into the category of maturing so that they begin to share with others what God has, has done for them. You know, when we looked at the, the third question, so two weeks ago, how are disciples made? We noted that the, in the path of discipleship that we're laying out here at Redeemer Baptist Church, and it's worth considering that again just for a moment, which in short, we said this path was to engage, evangelize, establish, and equip. So those four E movements along the path of discipleship here. Here's a way you could see it working out. So pastors and elders looking to Jesus set the tone, the pace, and the trajectory of discipleship at Redeemer Baptist Church, starting right here in the pulpit where we speak God's Word, where we seek the help and presence of His Spirit, where we uh, serve for and alongside you as His people, striving together for the advancement of God's kingdom and glory in all the earth. Now these actions, as the, with, with the teaching ministry of the, the elders here, who should be living lives of holiness, these actions have the effect of orienting the minds, desires, and wills of all of us, of all the members of Redeemer Baptist Church, to include ourselves. Our wills, our minds, and our desires are oriented to Christ as we grow in faith and repentance. From that ministry there works out in your lives, men and women, who though not elders yourselves, you may have more formal and uh, acknowledged roles of leadership in the church and service, or you may have less formal roles of, of uh, leadership and, and service in the church. But you also then speak God's Word, rely on God's Spirit, serve God's people, and strive for God's glory. What that does, that process then moves other individuals and families along the path who uh, are either maybe just coming to faith or beginning to grow in the grace of God from one degree of maturity to the next. Those new and therefore immature disciples are instructed and established by the mature and the maturing disciples among us and around them. And they grow in maturity and they become increasingly equipped to engage and evangelize and establish and equip others. And on it goes. And I just want to say this, if, if you are here today not knowing Jesus, right? if you're not in really any of those categories, I'm glad that you're here today. And I want you to know that I'm praying for you and have prayed for you and, and would ask that you would respond in faith to this invitation to look to Jesus Christ. Would you put your faith in Him 
that He might save you from your sins and lead you in the way everlasting. Let me wrap up this way. Or at least start to wrap up. We're, We're nearing the end. One thing that should be obvious by now from what we said two weeks ago and, and, and all that I've said this morning, um, discipleship is an endeavor for the entire church. The discipleship process is not something that God expects only from official and ordained church leaders. Consider what Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians 12. That makes the point well. We don't have time to to read all of it, um, especially reading 12 through 14, which is really that, that whole section there. But I, I want to make a quick note um, of, of what he says in those chapters. And he's, he's talking about spiritual gifts, and he compares the church of Christ to a body, right? It's a common image in the New Testament. Christ is the head, and the church is the body, and local churches are local expressions of that universal reality. And the point in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is that we need to consider what this body imagery implies about our relationships with one another. In verse 27, he says, we are one body with many members. We all have a job to do. We must all be involved in the work of maturing and growing as a body, as we saw in Ephesians 4. So, whether... You are a mouth, an ear, a leg, a kidney, a toe, or a hand. You must be growing and maturing or else the body suffers. Think about it. If, I, if my hands were the same size they were when I was three years old, I would have a problem. Whatever you are, you need to be growing or else the whole body will suffer. And so if you're a member of Redeemer Baptist Church or... Uh, we just had a membership class. If you're seeking to be one soon, ask yourself this. What job do I have in building up the body of Christ here as a disciple of Jesus? And again, we're, we're not ultimately building the kingdom of Redeemer Baptist Church. It's, our service often begins here in our local church, but it is intended to extend to all of the world as God's kingdom, not my kingdom or your kingdom or even our kingdom here in Rinkin, but God's kingdom in all the world. Right? So the question is, what job do I have in serving the body of Christ here as a disciple of Christ? One way to begin to answer this question is to ask um, uh, a few questions. You could ask this. Who are the people at this church that I need to be active in learning from, right? So if you think about a spectrum, someone's always ahead of you, someone's always behind you, right? So who are the people in this church that you say, I need to be active in learning from this person or these people? Well, you know what the next question is going to be, right? Who are the people in this church that I want to be active in pursuing and engaging and encouraging, right? Who are the people that I think I can come alongside and be a help, right? You're not thinking down on anybody. It's not that, but just realizing that you have gifts to offer. To offer help and service of one another. 
So who are the people that you're learning from and who are the people that you are encouraging and, and teaching, right? If you can't think of someone further along the path or someone maybe not quite as far along, right, then I, you've got some thinking and some, some praying to do. Another way that you can go about answering this question about your, your, your job, your role as a member of, of Redeemer Baptist Church is to ask this, what am I good at doing? What do I enjoy doing? What opportunities do I have to employ these things in the service to Christ and His kingdom? I think often we, we way overcomplicate things like spiritual gifts. Right? What's your spiritual gift? And you've got like a list of four or five things that you know. And you're like, I don't know. None of those probably. In short, what do, you, what, do you, what do you like doing? What are you good at? And how can you use those things to build up the body of Christ? I want to, I want to consider, consider the end of this as we, as we close here. Titus. Um, not, I won't really make many comments about it at all. Very briefly, but I want to read verses 11 through 14 of Titus 2. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There it is. We are waiting for our blessed hope, brothers and sisters. The appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we wait, what shall we do? Let us remember that every single one of us has a part to play in this wonderful process of making disciples of the Lord Jesus. We're all being discipled, and we're all discipling. And if not, that should be rectified for God's glory and for the good of those around us. So if you've got questions, don't hesitate to ask those questions even at lunch in just a few minutes. Amen? Amen.